Welcome, everyone. Thank you for attending today's Capitol Hill briefing titled, Why the Government Should Not Regulate Content Moderation of Social Media. My name is Jeff Vanderslice, and I am the Director of Government and External Affairs at the Cato Institute, a Washington, D.C.-based think tank uh, dedicated to the principles of individual liberty, limited government, free markets, and peace. Joining us for today's discussion are two of Cato's scholars uh, to discuss the findings of a recently published policy analysis uh, by the same title as today's briefing. You should all have a copy of, of, uh, of this analysis on your chairs. Uh, if you don't have a copy for whatever reason, please let us know and we'd be happy to bring one by your office. Uh, today's first speaker is John Samples, uh, a vice president at the Cato Institute and author of today's uh, policy analysis. Samples founded and directs Cato's Center for Representative Democracy, I'm sorry, Representative Government, which studies the First Amendment, uh, government institutional failure, and public opinion. He is a prolific author whose work includes The Struggle to Limit Government, A Political History, and The Fallacy of Campaign Finance Reform. His commentary has been published in periodicals such as USA Today, The New York Times, and The Los Angeles Times, and he has appeared on NPR, Fox News Channel, and MSNBC. Prior to joining Cato, Dr. Samples served as director of Georgetown University Press, and before that, as vice president of the 20th Century Fund. He received his PhD in political science from Rutgers University. Our second speaker will be Matthew Feeney, who is the director of Cato's Project on Emerging Technologies, where he focuses on issues concerning the intersection of new technologies and civil liberties. Before coming to Cato, Matthew worked at Reason Magazine and as assistant editor uh, of Reason.com. Um, Matthew's writing has appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, Huffington Post, The Hill, the San Francisco Chronicle, the Washington Examiner, and others. Uh, he received both his MA and uh, BA in philosophy from the University of Reading. Uh, we will now turn to our speakers who will speak until about 12.45 and then we'll turn uh, the floor over to Q&A. Thank you all for coming. <clears throat> Thanks very much, Jeff. Uh, you know, we all have our pet theories about things and I want to share one of my pet theories. For every communications technology, there is a moment when its political implications become evident for all. And when that happens, regulation or attempts at regulation follow shortly thereafter. Take television. Telev 1968 election was that moment for television. In 1968, the things that happened both in the streets and elsewhere made it evident that television could be a very destabil destabilizing communications technology. It was a matter of interest to people who have to be elected to office. I think, and then regulations followed, by the way. There was uh, regulations on how much money you could spend specifically on broadcasts, and of course you had our basic campaign finance laws show up in 1974. I think the 2016 election will be seen in the future as the election where the political implications of the internet and, of course, of social media became evident to all. And so we find ourselves in a kind of 1969-1970 situation for a couple of years now. There's much discussion about social media, its implications, the harms done, and the question is posed, 
what should government do about social media? But I think we're asking the wrong question. The right question is, what can government do? And that should come before we talk uh, extensively about what it should be doing in regard to social media. So social media is a tough issue to define. Let me begin with a definition I think would be accepted by most. There's some discussion in the paper about the various kinds of definitions. But I think this does pretty well. A social media is a multi-sided online platform. And that means that users both create and consume content through a platform and through services provided by a tech company. If that seems abstract, just I always think about Facebook. What is, it, what is happening there? Maybe I'm creating, I'm certainly consuming, they're giving me a way to do that and to reach other people, right? But that's not the whole story. The tech company gathers data about the users, which then is used to better target ads. Now notice here, I have said the usual thing, which is create and consume content. What is content, though? We think of it in that kind of uh, jargonish term. Content is almost always speech. It's not always political speech, right? Not everything's about politics, but it is about speech. It's also, uh, and this I won't go into in depth, but it's an interesting point. Even with the advertising, it's about commercial speech, which has been its own area for the Supreme Court in making lots of decisions and has considerable protection. Speech itself, of course, has great protection. Let me talk about three ways where I think over the, particularly the last 50 years, the United States, not just the Cato Institute, not just the courts, but the United States as a, a nation, as a government, has decided to offer extraordinary protections for social media because we have built and authorized extraordinary protections for speech. So what are the limits on government? Number one, of course, is the one you think of first, the First Amendment. Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech or of the press. And of course, that is very relevant here. Congress, government at any level, cannot reach down inside of Facebook and directly censor, directly restrict speech by its users. It's sort of unimaginable. And if it weren't imaginable, were imaginable, it would quickly be stopped by the courts. But think of the breadth of the protections we have, particularly, I say, in the last 50 years. Incitement to violence. You have to go to the very edge of causing a riot to have speech regulated. Uh, think about the, how few protections elected officials have against defamation, against libel. That's a court decision that did that. It could be much different, but that's a protection for people who want to criticize public officials. That's very broad, and it's been in place for 50 years. And then there's other things that are sort of at the edges more, but still important. For example, in 1965, Justice William Brennan suggested that there is a strong uh, uh, right for people to receive information, indeed information from abroad, in a case of a magazine coming from what was then Maoist China. So it's not even clear that you can protect or you can, that the government can prevent information coming in from abroad. And that, I would suggest to you, is part of this entire 
way of going about speech in the United States. For a long time now, we have very strong protections. And that's going to mean that there's not much government can do about much of this, despite all the talk we have and all the concerns and all the worry, government is powerfully limited. And we, not just because the courts have been activists or something, but because as a country over a settled period of 50 years, we've really said this is the way we want to go. We often contrast the American way to the European way, which is more open to these kinds of regulations. Number two limit, and this one's a little more of a curveball. It's based on the idea that state action is not present on social media. What does that mean? Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. Congress is interpreted as government anywhere at any time in the United States. That's the state has to act to restrict freedom of speech before there can be a problem, a constitutional problem. Believe it or not, Facebook is not a government. It's something that exists in Northern California and many other places, but it's not a government. So in, in Google and, and so on, these are private businesses. They are not covered by the Constitution. There are no First Amendment protections against having your speech removed by uh, Google or Facebook. Here's the way I think about it. Right now, we're sitting in a government building and uh, discussing this. If, let's say, Senator Rand Paul came in here, stood at the back and shouted, Samples, you're, uh, you're saying heresy about libertarianism. You're not orthodox. Get out. You have to leave the building now. I would say, great. I'm going outside, get on my phone, call Eugene Volokh, have I got a case for you, Gene? Senator Rand Paul has just gotten after me and thrown me out of a government building, out of a public forum. We're gonna have so much publicity, it's gonna be great. The point being, a government official censoring speech in a public forum is not something under the Constitution. But so let's say we were at the Cato Institute our same Senator Paul, and by the way, in case there's any doubts here, I chose Senator Paul because this is absolutely nothing he would ever do, right? He's, there are others that might, I'm not so sure about, but Senator Paul, I'm pretty sure about. Let's say we're at the Cato Institute. He comes up and says, look, Feeney, what's he doing there? I'm a lot more famous than Feeney. Get him out of there and let me talk. And I say to him, Senator Paul, You've lost your mind, first. And two, I want Feeney. I don't want you. Get out. Senator Paul has no claims against me. He has no right to be on the panel instead of Matthew Feeney. Nobody has that right, right? Cato Institute is a uh, private institution, a nonprofit. Facebook is. Google is. Again, this point of no state action. So that's a powerful point, actually as we go down. And finally, the third one is the one that is discussed widely, which is Section 203, uh, 230C. That is also referred to as Section 230, part of the U.S. Code now, and part of a law passed in uh, 1996 by Congress. This is not the courts. This is Congress. And I thought we should linger here a little bit, because this is much discussed, 
and much misinterpreted, I think. So look, let's look at the actual language of this bill, which comes on, C begins with the protection of Good Samaritan blocking and screening of offensive material. The first part is, quote, no provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider, unquote. Now, that's not the most scintillating prose that's ever been written. But what it means, the, the not being a publisher is important because publishers are responsible for the things they publish and can be sued for libel, right? In this case, Congress decided to specifically exempt social media from that, specifically. And why? I think part of the issue is, well, part of the issue is they were concerned, uh, Senator Wyden and Mr. Cox, then Representative Cox, were concerned that they had this new industry. They didn't know where it was going to go, but they thought it had a lot of potential, and they didn't want to stifle it. Well, what would stifle it? Well, let's say that uh, Facebook or Google or whomever was responsible, or any uh, service at that time, was responsible for everything published on their platform, for libel. How do you respond to that kind of danger if you're a business leader? Because after all, a libel finding can go into the millions and millions. It could destroy your business. That's your attitude about it, right, at, in 1996 or 1998. So what do you do? Two choices, really. One is you do nothing, and you let everybody on there. Well, is that going to make a successful business? What are these companies going to look like now if that had been the case? Probably not. The other alternative is what I would call the take no chances, right? You can see this in a Facebook board meeting or whatever. Take no chances. If it looks like it might be def defamatory, if it looks like it might lead to a court case, take it down. So what you're going to end up with, if you don't have these kinds of protections and you don't, you're not able to decide what everything is that goes on the platform, you don't make a judgment about it when it goes up, you're going to end up probably taking down a lot of speech that should be heard, and you're going to end up with a very narrow range of speech. A lot of people aren't going to, are going to find that uh, their speech is taken down off the platform. That's the choice you face, and the choice is likely to produce very little, as we say, content on social media. When people say, 2.30 is the source of the internet we have today and a lot of the good things that it's created. This is what they mean. Without this law, it wouldn't exist the same way it does. Um, the second part of it is even more revealing and less quoted, right? Remember, we're talking about Section 2.30 here. Civil liability, right? Quote, no provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be held liable on account of any action voluntarily taken in good faith to restrict access to or availability of material that the provider or user considers to be, get ready for this list, obscene, lewd, lascivious, filthy, excess excessively violent, harassing, or otherwise objectionable. Whether or not such material is constitutionally protected, Otherwise objectionable? It seems to me that Congress in 96 said to the social, it was in the public interest and for the growth and prosperity created by these companies that they had a very broad hand in deciding what they wanted to do about um, regulating their uh, platforms. 
and it, they were enabled in that sense, right? So the state action not being present, there was also a very uh, positive grant of power in which the um, government, through Congress, the people of the United States, through their elected representatives, said that, in fact, we want you to do this. Now, in the context, as you may know, there was a big fight about pornography on the early internet and obscenity, because you can see from the words that were used there. Uh, and this was actually, Section 230 was the alternative to a, very, a, well, a bill that ultimately also ended up in the bill at the time and was later totally struck down by the Supreme Court. The general thought was we're going to empower you, the, the social media, to take down obscenity. Now consider for a moment the following. What does all this mean about whether or not Section 230 demanded neutrality or political neutrality or ideological neutrality from the service, from the social media providers, from the tech companies? In fact, what the 230 says is you don't have to be neutral. You shouldn't fear being non-neutral let alone there's the issue of uh, obscenity and so on, but that term otherwise objectionable means they don't have to be neutral at all. Now, there might be good reasons to be neutral. There might be a good business model for that. That's not in the legislation, right? So what you have basically is, I think, very strong reasons to think that, there, that the United States as a government and really as a people, as a nation, over a long period of time, have decided that what goes on in social media is predominantly a private undertaking. There's a protection for private speech, but there's protection for private regulation of speech also. So in that context, it takes a strong argument to say, well, we nonetheless need to regulate. The government should be, have the power to regulate. What are those arguments? Well, there's antitrust. These are large monopolies. They have all the ad markets and so on. Um, I think the arguments there are difficult in the sense or uh, should be rejected in the sense we're too early. You know the arguments probably if you've read in this area. We have identified several mon you know, monopolies in the past that turned out not to be monopolies. It's also possible, I think, that given what we've done in the past, for example, what the FCC was supposed to generate competition. And in fact, it, it tended to cause all kinds of economic inefficiencies, but also to lock in monopolies. Le legis as we've uh, seen quite often, and I was happy to see at the hearings for Mark Zuckerberg that there's an awareness that regulation can in fact cause monopolies that didn't exist before. National security, otherwise known as election interference, otherwise known as the Russians, at least at this point, right? It is evident that, uh, or I think um, can be argued, the purchasing uh, ads from Facebook that directly called for the election or defeat of a federal candidate, and that's part of the law, is um, illegal, and people were indicted from Russia for that. However, it's not clear that beyond that, if you just have issue ads from foreign nationals, that that's in fact illegal under current law. Mark Zuckerberg has complained about this. And there's a danger that actually issue ads, ads about general political speech, would in fact be uh, taken down as illegal when they weren't. But remember, despite all the hysteria that we've had in the last couple of years, 
We've been dealing with this issue in the United States for 80 years, back to when Nazis were running around in the 1930s with very noxious policies, obviously, <laughs> inside the United States. And, and since then, with few exceptions, the general policy has been disclosure, not suppression of speech for the United States government. Um, in this city, people go around all the time advocating on behalf our paid advocates for foreign nationals, or there are foreign nationals. They have to disclose that. The Russians have an entire television network working inside the United States, which is no one really that paid attention uh, doubted that it was a Russian propaganda effort, really. Uh, but a couple of years ago, it had to be disclosed that it was a Russian agent, essentially. And yet it still continues to be somewhere in the 300s on cable channels. And it runs right through the elections. Uh, and it seems to be sustainable. Companies are doing a lot here. One of the questions here is the problems you have, if you have problems with the way things are going, who best should respond, the companies or the government? The companies are responding. Facebook in particular thinks a lot of the, uh, those issues could be dealt with by really arguably over-disclosure, but a, a really extensive disclosure system. What about fake news? Fake news seems to me kind of fake itself in the following sense. It certainly exists. There are certainly things like conspiracy theories. But for government, it's, it's a vague term. And it's one that we have to realize in the United States under the First Amendment, false speech is protected speech. There is no general exception to the First Amendment for falsity. And you see why if you, I don't know how much you talk to people from both sides, uh, but if you do, you see that there's lots of people that believe that it's pretty easy. The, what the other side says is false, and what we say is true. And so if the government regulated it on that basis, then every four years, you, or once you got a unified government, you would, in fact, have lots of false speech, which is a vague term, being regulated. Uh, Facebook and other companies face the same problem. They have to try to figure that out. They tend to do it by downgrading uh, false speech or fake news uh, and th those issues. They're going to face the same uh, problems as the government, but they, in fact, have the, the right to do that. Now, hate speech. I think this will be the big issue for in the years to come, uh, both online and probably also for the government and certainly for the international sphere, right? Uh, in Europe, this will be a big issue because uh, European com uh, countries have long had different values here and also different regulations that were upheld about hate speech. But in the United States, um, in fact, we, hate speech is not unprotected by the First Amendment. The case of RAV versus City of St. Paul suggested that hate speech is uh, a regulation, a restriction on speech for its content and that it could not be done under the First Amendment. So since then, it's generally been assumed that hate speech has uh, extensive constitutional protection. So the government here in doing this is going to have a very limited power. The companies all, however, all have hate speech policies. And it begins something like, we do not ha condone or have hate speech on our platform. If you look at Facebook's, which is a fairly typical policy, it, uh, you, you see that, quote, we define hate speech as a direct attack on people based on what we call protected characteristics. 
race, ethnicity, national origin, religious affiliation, sexual orientation, caste, sex, gender, gender identity, and serious disease or disability. We define attack as violent or dehumanizing speech, statements of inferiority, or calls for exclusion or segregation, unquote. So in a sense, if you're concerned about hate speech and you're aware of the constitutional, uh, it's very clear that the companies themselves are going to have, for business reasons or other reasons or some mixture of reasons, they in fact have acted to deal with hate speech. Now they, I will point out though, they face the same problem that the government does, which is what is hate speech, how elastic is the concept, and what is that going to mean over time? Indeed, I think much of the struggle over political bias will fall in the area of hate speech because people will feel that normal political speech is being brought under the hate speech umbrella. Right now, I would point out at Facebook, there's an interesting point, which is that if you, they say that, for example, a direct attack on the basis of a person's race, that applies to everyone, right? So it's possible, if you read the Monica Bickert article in Vanity Fair, uh, she was spending some time figuring out about a racial attack on white males. So white people in general, it's a universal category. You can't attack anybody uh, at any time, supposedly, for their race, whether whatever it might be, right? Uh, we tend to think, I think, for a variety of historical reasons, that, that those uh, categories are different, right? But We'll see. I understand there's a, a debate going on inside the companies about that, whether it should apply specifically to one group or, and not be, be less than universal. Now, conclusion. What, what can we conclude from all of this? Well, government policy, despite all of the discussions and all of this, is very limited here, and rightly so. And it's rightly so because it's speech, not just political speech, but speech generally. A way not to go here is one that is being discussed and will be considered, I think, which is something like a fairness doctrine, though it certainly won't be called that. The outrage about being removed, the constant outrage over some period of time about that, about allegedly one side or the other being the object of bias, could lead to something like a government attempt to force fairness on those groups. I would recall to you that we have some history here. The fairness doctrine went away in the 1980s, and so maybe Republicans really should remember that it was Ronald Reagan and his administration that put it to death in the 80s, but it would have been on its deathbed for a long time. And why? Because in the 1960s and 70s, both sides of the political aisle found that the fairness doctrine could be used to limit their speech by the speech of conservatives under Kennedy and Johnson and the speech of liberals under Richard Nixon. So by the time you get to 75 or 76, both sides re realize this is kind of like poison gas. If you start using it, it really affects everyone. We don't want it. And it'll be the same online, I think, also. Private regulation is permissible. Self-regulation is permissible, and it's the way to go. Politics is going to make it difficult, and here, I think, is the great danger. Um, people will realize, particularly elected officials, but perhaps others, that these are perhaps our prime forums for speech and political speech in the years to come. 
they will also realize that there's no First protect, Amendment protection. If you didn't think speech was legitimate, if you think your opponent's speech is illegitimate, you can't, if you're an elected official, you can't go and restrict it. But you might have a good way of convincing Mr. Zuckerberg to do it. You might threaten him, implicitly or explicitly, right? You might make some offers. You might do something for him. You, in other words, the political process might come into the running of these, uh, these institutions. And so you'll end up with a dystopian result, which is private regulation through, uh, at the behest of public uh, government, government officials, which then has no recourse to the First Amendment. So you've actually created a private pub forum that's publicly run but not protected by the First Amendment. That's something to keep in mind and something, given the nature of politics, that is, if not inevitable, seems likely, and something to be avoided at all costs. Now, I would end by noting there are attempts to avoid this. Mark Zuckerberg, if you read his uh, infamous or famous op-ed about a week ago, uh, the sort of the what it was about got lost, I think he was trying to propose that companies, rather than the government, should come up with a baseline of standards through an independent body that then you could have some self-regulation. This is, I don't know if it can work. There's obvious objections to it. Uh, but it's the front end of trying to do this. My point, final point would be we want the private res, uh, responses to this. Government can't do it, and you certainly don't want them to do it. Thank you, John. We'll now hear from Matthew. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, my name is Matthew Feeney. As Jeff said, I'm the director of Cato's project on emerging technologies. Uh, so I spend a lot of my time thinking about artificial intelligence, driverless cars, drones, the Internet of Things, but increasingly I'm spending more and more time thinking about what's called big tech, which is uh, why I'm here today. Uh, I, I'm aware that we have to close up at 1, and I want to make sure that I leave some time for Q&A, so I won't take as long as John, but I want to uh, mention uh, a couple of thoughts that I have on, on the topic. One is, I think we're at a stage where the so-called big tech companies are under bipartisan attack, and uh, is for a variety of motivations. If I could be crude, I think uh, there are some uh, some on the right who think that Silicon Valley is populated by anti-conservative lefties uh, who want to censor conservative speech. And on the left, you have uh, some people who think that these are big, powerful companies that are monopolies that let Trump win the election, thanks to foreign influence. And I want to highlight that I think a lot of these uh, accusations are actually not, not founded. Uh, bad data make bad law, and oftentimes when we're thinking about the uh, alleged uh, censorship of people on the internet, we're actually dealing with anecdotes and not data. And I thought it might be worth discussing uh, one, one of the big companies, Google, and a letter that uh, a political organization wrote to Google in a April uh, 2017 that I think puts this in context. Uh, the authors wrote, Google and by implication its parent company Alphabet are now engaged in political censorship of the internet. Censorship on this scale is political blacklisting. The obvious intent of Google's censorship algorithm is to block news that your company does not report it and to suppress opinions which you do not agree. Political blacklisting is not a legitimate exercise. 
of whatever may be Google's prerogatives as a commercial enterprise. It is a gross abuse of monopolistic power. What you are doing is an attack on the freedom of speech. Google is manipulating its internet search to restrict public awareness and access of socialist, anti-war, and left-wing websites. The World, uh, World Socialist website is an online newspaper of the interna international Trotskyist movement. It is the most widely read socialist publication on the internet. These allegations of censorship are not a right-wing phenomenon. Uh, other political groups, uh, such as Police the Police, Free Thoughts Project, Collectively Conscious, uh, which I think it's fair to say position themselves on the left, uh, do uh, and have uh, complained about censorship online. Uh, perhaps a lot of the complaints that we hear about uh, political motivation uh, in these companies is in fact a response to the fact that we live in an increasingly uh, bipolar political environment where people don't listen uh, to each other very often. I have to say that I find it it's strange to think that uh, many private companies would, would engage in the, in the kind of behavior that's been alleged. Uh, these are profit-seeking companies, uh, and it's, it's fair to say that they do make mistakes sometimes, but uh, to, to suggest that there's an implicit or dedicated uh, culture of censorship, I think, is, is a mistake. Uh, unfortunately, we live in a populist era where I think politicians on both sides of the aisle find it uh, politically advantageous to attack these companies, and I don't think we should expect that to, to change. And we should keep in mind that tragedies always lead to bad policies. Uh, many of you will, of course, uh, be still thinking about the attacks that we saw in New Zealand uh, and the response to uh, the response to that. Uh, some of you may even have been reading about what uh, New Zealand law and uh, has uh, has led to down there. New Zealand, unlike the United States, does not uh, have the, the First Amendment. Uh, it has a chief censor, and people have been getting in a lot of trouble in New Zealand for uh, sharing the, the now famous video of the shooting, uh, some even losing their jobs. And it shouldn't surprise people that when talking about extremist content, uh, we run the risk of many uh, false positives. Uh, there were, in the wake of the shooting in New Zealand, there was uh, a push by YouTube to jettison a lot of human moderators and to rely on machine learning in order to take down a lot of videos, uh, thinking that false positives in this context was a price worth paying to address a video that was proliferating across the internet. Something I, I would like to discuss uh, when it comes to content moderation and social media is the importance of anonymous speech and the potential risks we run with uh, social media content moderation. Uh, I don't know if any of uh, Senator Warner's uh, staff are in the room, but uh, last year the senator released a, a white paper outlining a few uh, potential policies discussing uh, his worry about the use of anonymous or inauthentic accounts and he actually, to be fair to Senator Warner, did highlight uh, potential problems with this, noting that Facebook has, for instance, come under criticism from a variety of groups and advocates, LGBT, Native Americans, and human rights groups, for its real name policy. It may also better enable online platforms to track users, uh, but he went on to mention that any effort on this front must address the real safety and security concerns of these types of at-risk individuals. Unfortunately, the senator didn't outline a potential solution to the problem. Anonymous speech is very valuable for people in at-risk communities or who live in countries where uh, speech is not as free. 
Something else that the uh, senator went on to discuss that I would like to highlight uh, is a proposal where he wrote, a law could be crafted imposing an affirmative ongoing duty on platforms to identify and curtail inauthentic accounts with an SEC reporting duty to disclose to the public and advertisers the number of identified inauthentic accounts and the percentage of the platform's user base that represented. He went on. Mandatory identity verification is likely to arouse significant opposition from digital privacy groups and potentially from civil rights groups and human rights organizations who fear that such policies will harm at-risk populations. Uh, I think he's absolutely right about that, but I find it difficult to see how uh, the senator will be able to square this whole. But I look forward to any, any suggestions. A piece of legislation that some of you may be familiar with that I want to, to finish up with is uh, the so-called uh, Honest Ads Act, this, or the uh, potential uh, kinds of legislation aimed at addressing uh, inauthentic accounts on social media uh, paid for by foreign nationals. Uh, I recommend uh, the Institute for Free Speech has put out an analysis on uh, HR1 as well as uh, similar legislation. And there are a host of concerns associated with this kind of uh, legislation, but I want to address one. In the Institute for Free Speech, I think, notes that there's there's a serious worry uh, about with one of the main provisions, which is that it would make media outlets liable for uh, policing prohibited speakers. Uh, and this, I think, prompts a lot of overkill. There are uh, similar legislation in, in Maryland and Washington, which actually prompted uh, online platforms to actually disengage from political advertising in those jurisdictions, uh, which I think is a worry. Uh, they, the, uh, the Institute for Free Speech wrote uh, that there, there are the, quote, reasonable efforts which are very uh, undefined, and careful lawyers will doubtlessly suggest a conservative approach that will further drive up the cost of small-scale advertising. And I think that's a serious worry, given that political advertising is very valuable speech. Uh, I'll finish by uh, noting something you hear sometimes in these kind of debates where uh, people say, well, why don't, uh, why don't social media companies just adopt the First Amendment as a standard, uh, and therefore we could just have uh, a much more free speech environment. Uh, and I think there are clear reasons why a social media company would not want to adopt the First Amendment as a standard, uh, especially because they're profit-seeking companies. Uh, a First Amendment standard for a social media company would require uh, allowances for pornography or videos of animals being crushed to death, and speech that is uh, protected by the First Amendment, but I think there are clear and obvious reasons why a social media company might not want to allow such footage on their sites. Uh, and with that, I think we have 50 minutes or so for questions, uh, and I look forward to them. Thank you. Okay, yeah, I think we have a microphone that's somewhere in the room, so if you have a question, yes, there at the back. So if you have a question, please, uh, and when you're called on, please wait for the microphone. Uh, this gentleman uh, right here in the aisle. Hi, um, I'm Scott. So I, th um, so in the House Judiciary Committee, a lot of focus has not been on, say, um, antitrust regulation on the companies, but like on um, giving antitrust exemptions to other companies like media organizations so they can get more um, power to negotiate with Facebook. Does the Cato Institute or the experts on this panel have any opinion about that? I don't have an opinion on that. I haven't studied it, and uh, but, and that also I have to yes, I can understand that uh, policy debates are very different, and that's a very different debate than we're having in the public. The public, the presidential debate next year, I think, will be exclusively about the uh, very 
uh, a use of antitrust that's both breaks with tradition, but is you know break them up and competition is very normal. But I, d I haven't heard about more central allowing more centralization now. Yeah, I don't have uh, anything to add. I'm I'm not a uh, an antitrust policy expert, but John would be the best person to defer to there. We have another question up here. Uh, one of the things that you alluded to was Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. We heard last week in the Senate ideas about repealing it, and that will solve all of the ills of social media. Uh, Ms. Samples, you, you mentioned it. Can you expand on whether that's a good good idea to get rid of Section 230 or a bad idea, and why? Well, I, you know, what I was the point I was making was that we've had this joint decision over a long period of time that was really pr very protective of the private sector. So obviously, given my interest in freedom of speech and so on, I don't think that's a good idea. I think what you would have if you got rid of 230 is uh, much more openings for these kinds of convincing the companies to do stuff or for government to have much more of a role in uh, trying to regulate speech on there. Uh, and the other thing you have to say about this is that, you know, this is a somewhat complicated area because it's not the usual kind of what we think of in terms of free speech dangers, which is the government uh, going after a speaker, right? It's uh, applying, recognize the first parts about recognizing them as publishers and then removing the protection they have, right? Uh, and so I think the result would be that you would actually, they would be much more, as I mentioned during the speech, they would be much more careful about what they allowed on the platform, right? Uh, FOSTA was, in fact, uh, the first, uh, the Sex Trafficking Act of last year, was the first uh, real limit on 230. And uh, there's some evidence, I think, there that people almost immediately, actually, that you got very wide, uh, kind of a broad response to, because of the liability. And I think you would see that. The one thing I would say down the line is, um, remember, the key is on publishers. And publishers are held accountable for the stuff they write because they interact with it a lot. And so when they put something out from the start, they have chosen it. They've edited it and so on. And then that you have these normal tort protections. That's not the true, that's not the way it is with these gigantic platforms. However, to the extent that the artificial intelligence effort works, that is, that stuff is removed from the platform before it is even put up, the uh, these companies and platforms will start looking more like publishers because the, the censorship or the editorial control will come right at the front end. So to the extent that the AI gets good or really good or really what they're talking about is an acceptable number, number of errors because after all, publishers make errors too, the case for making, the, the case for making them like other publishers with the same kind of uh, legal liabilities I think will rise. And so there may be an inevitable uh, and not... Uh, you know, it's not particularly a political project. It just may be that a you know Mark Zuckerberg's very and all of them very clearly like technological solutions to their political problems and other problems. And as that technology uh, perfects, that the case that they are publishers might get better. And if so, then you will see a less political effort that will be uh, 
will require more consideration from advocates of free speech, I think. I'll only add that I don't fear really Section 230 repeal. I think there's just the chance of it dying a death of a thousand cuts that you have uh, carve-out proposals. Uh, Senators uh, Wyden and Warren, for example, seem pretty keen on uh, somehow changing the law to address whether it's Russian bots or potentially uh, potential content like fakes, uh, deep fakes, uh, and, and things like that. So I'm, I'm not too worried about full-on repeal. I just worry about it being carved away bit by bit. I think we had a question here at the front row, and then we'll jump back over to the other side. Thank you. Hi, good afternoon. Thank you for the fascinating conversation. Um, I My question kind of surrounds the concept of like hate speech and specifically radicalization. Now, you briefly mentioned it um, earlier, Mr. Samples, but my question is how would you suggest or should we suggest a balancing of like radicalization on social media platforms simply because of the implications both like on the social and the individual level. By social, I mean things like radicalizations and shooting a mosque, unfortunately. And then the individual letter level, like a young black child going on Twitter and seeing the N-word kind of spread all over through this timeline. Mm -hmm. How do we reason and find that balance to make sure that we don't like infringe on First Amendment rights, but also kind of protecting our individuals as well? So. In many respects, the first step in thinking about everything is not about the content of speech, but about who decides, right? This is sort of the point of my PA. And my point is that for a variety of reasons, over time, we have a country has decided that the government or elected officials have bad incentives and one thing or another. They, they really aren't the best place to make those decisions. So in regard to your question, because the things you've pointed to, although with terrorism, I think governments are involved in a variety of ways. Maybe Matthew can speak more to that. But still, that government's not the primary way that you respond. But as I said, the companies do have that right. They also, I think another point to be made is, think about all of what you know about the federal government. They are also the ones that have the best capacity to respond right, on these things. They have the, uh, and they're not limited by the First Amendment. But then comes the problem where you draw the lines on hate speech or, or what you're really talking about is causing harms. Now, in a free speech context, if you know the history, if you went to law school, um, we as, the, the companies seem, when they talk about these matters of harms being caused by speech, they tend to go back to the language of what's called the bad tendency test. The bad tendency test was uh, before the one we have now, which is the Brandenburg test, which is really hard for speech to be uh, regulated. It has w The bad tendency test, just like what it says, if the speech tends to cause problems, if a communist statement calls for the overthrow of the government, that has a tendency to bring it about, or a sort of a few guys out on the street giving away anti-draft uh, pamphlets. It has a tendency to make people stop uh, going to war or going to the draft. And so government can regulate that. Mm -hmm. And the, I think the, you may see something, uh, it's a matter of some concern that the companies end up back there, that these long-term causes you want... I think the, the problem beyond that will be, is hate speech going to be just another word for conservative or another word for liberal. And 
it's, this is why these institutions that the companies create are important that they be legitimate, that people can say, even if they're taking down stuff, you know, they're doing, they're the best ones to do that, and they're doing a decent job, even if I don't always like it, because the alternative is bad government. I want to only add that a, a lot of this content moderate, a lot of these decisions surrounding this are very, very difficult. And you can think of good rules that nonetheless will have many exceptions. So it sounds like right, a, a good rule, if you're a social media company, we're not, we're not going to allow images of naked children on our platform. Uh, but then there's that iconic uh, Vietnam war photo of the young girl running away from the napalm blast, which got flagged, removed, taken down. Then there was a, uh, a Holocaust uh, remembrance non profit that uh, was flagged and had stuff taken down because of images from from Auschwitz uh, which are historically relevant and uh, of and the social media companies decided then that that was an exception to a good rule uh, that would also happen though with uh, the, the example you used of using racial epithets so a, uh, a documentary about the civil rights movement right are those exceptions and I raise this just to mention that this sort of stuff is hard uh, and I, I don't envy the human beings involved in content moderation. Uh, the difficult, what, what I fall back on is I'd rather there be private sector mistakes than government mistakes. That I'd rather it be private companies that are trying to deal with these difficult is issues than a government official deciding what hate speech is and will decide. Uh, that, that's, uh, that's the worrying world for me at least. There's, a, I just have to mention this, beyond the politics of this, there was the great breastfeeding struggle on Facebook, which went on for, it seemed like the goat went on for years and years, which I didn't quite understand why it did. But it, they started removing, uh, they had groups of uh, mothers who were advocating breastfeeding, and they started removing pictures. People would uh, get up in the morning and see some of their photos had been removed. And so there's, there's a, many things like that. The other day I, I proposed to a uh, Facebook representative, why don't you just say, you know, it's like child pornography. Child pornography is not legal speech, but it's not legal speech because it's an illegal act, right? Justice Roberts has said this. And um, so why don't you just say someone's going around Christchurch killing somebody, people, that's illegal acts. What's, what about the analogy there? Why can't you just, if people are going around doing that, this is not going to be on our platform, right? And the answer she gave was, well, what about Syria? Or what about human rights abuses here? Or violence against people here or there, right? In a sense, to ask, you know, I think more generally, for political neutrality or neutrality from these people is probably just impossible. I want to quickly add, because uh, John reminded me on... Uh, you may, if you look into it, I, this would be interesting to find instances where content has violated a private company's uh, social media uh, content moderation policy, but then intelligence agencies have asked them to actually, if not keep it, collect information about it. If you have uh, idiot ISIS members who are geotagging themselves on Twitter and revealing information about themselves and evidence of crimes, uh, you can imagine a situation where the CIA or NSA might say to Twitter, hey, could you actually leave its valuable data. Uh, and uh, I'd be interested to read more into that now that you've raised the question in my mind. But uh, yeah, this is difficult. We have yeah. time for one last question, and I think it goes to uh, this young lady in the second row. 
Hi, my name is Sarah. Thank you for this opportunity. So I do have a question regard to WikiLeaks. WikiLeaks. Um, so you talked about how um, social media shouldn't be regulated, especially in the United States because of First Amendment rights, um, as well as how publishers should be accountable for what they publish. So examples like WikiLeaks, you know, as we get more globalized, like will there be any standards or like how should government um, get involved with these kind of situation? You want uh, well, to so, uh, please, you after you, after you, I assist, I, yeah. Uh, there's a lot, there's a lot See, there. Um, I, I, I want to drop back for a minute and sort of raise a question about a general principle, which actually I would ask you all as we go forward here to keep this in mind. Remember, the American system is based on the idea that content, conduct is one thing, so you don't have a right to punch people, but that speech is a different thing. And that you basically, everyone's competent to say things and to hear things and to make up their own mind about stuff, even if it's Russian divisive speech or divisive speech of any sort, right? We've talked, we've, <laughs> go to our First Amendment Supreme Court decisions. There's a lot of stuff in there, a lot of rhetoric and prose about that. And here, those kinds of principles seem to uh, desert us. So my point being on something like WikiLeaks, there's the issue about how it comes public, but the hearing of it, right, is perfectly sensible within the First Amendment values we've always uh, said were our values. But that's also true about divisive speech by Russians, Swedes, Saudi Arabia, anybody, right? We really seem to have gotten kind of panicky about our own fundamental values uh, because, you know, it's imaginable that the Russians will do this or that, or we have large, powerful competitors. But remember, that these values are deeply rooted and have lasted for a long time. That's a generalized response, but that's the one I would say. Yeah, was there a particular policy or, or legal area you're interested in in regards to WikiLeaks? The Right, there's a whole body of law governing right the the right of journalists to publish uh, leaked information. I mean, what's interesting about the the WikiLeaks or the most recent developments there are allegations that the the publisher helped carry out an illegal act, namely the the hacking of it. And uh, I haven't read the the indictment or seen a lot of that, so I haven't uh, actually you know can't come to a any comment on that at the moment. But that that's a slightly separate issue to I suppose content moderation. Uh being from the Cato Institute, I, you know, I just have to say at this point, uh, I'm a, I think we, we tend to be a little skeptical that things... I mean, Daniel Patrick Moynihan was like that, if, if you don't know who he was. He was a giant of the Senate. And he was skeptical about how things become secret. Right? He wasn't a libertarian. He was a sort of liberal conservative. Uh, Moynihan was. Become skeptical about how things end up and why are they being kept secret and that sort of thing. And it is there is a real contradiction to our free speech values, I think. 
And with that, that con concludes our event. Thank you all for coming. Um, I know there were a few other questions. I think both of our speakers would be happy to stick I'll around for out. a few additional minutes and uh, answer those for you. Let's give them a round of applause. Thank you. Thanks, Jeff.